All right. If you have a Bible, find the last book in it, Revelation chapter 2. For those of you who were not here uh, last week, and for that matter, those of you who were, I'm going to rehearse just some basic assumptions we need to have about the book, some presuppositions that we need to carry into our study of it so that you can make the most sense of it as you make your way through it. Okay? So I had three... Um, three presuppositions, three assumptions that, about the book that we need to have in mind. The first one is this, that the book of Revelation is not entirely about the future. It's not entirely about the future. Now, there are some future things in it, for sure. The big fat elephant in the room is the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, which clearly has not happened yet, um, and that is still a future thing. But the, the main crux of this assumption is this. What John wrote down in this book uh, would have been immediately relevant to believers in the first century. He didn't write to persecuted believers in the first century and say, check this out, guys. Check out what's going to happen in 2,500 years. No, he's not saying that at all. This is, this is, so what that means is if this was relevant to them then and there in the first century, it's relevant to us here and now, okay? It's not entirely about the future. Second, um, second assumption that we need to have uh, in this is that the book of Revelation is not exactly chronological. It's not like the Gospels. It's not like the book of Acts where there's 28 chapters in Acts and you anticipate that the things that happen in chapter 28 come a long time after the things that happen in chapter 1 and you just keep moving chrono chronologically through the chapters. Revelation's not like that. There are 22 chapters in the book of Revelation. And not surprisingly, there are sort of seven different sections throughout those 22 chapters. Uh, I, I, I listed what those sections were. If you can catch the podcast when it's posted of last week, if you want to know, you can, you can listen on there where, what they were. But those seven sections, each of them describe the entire period of time between the first coming and the second coming of Jesus. That's right now, okay? We live in that, in that time period. And so you can kind of tell when a new section begins because there is some reference to the first coming of Jesus, and you can tell when it ends because there's a reference to the second coming of Jesus and the end of all things. And that's why not just at the end of the book, but at many times... Throughout the whole book, you have a description of the end of all things. You have, you have a description of the second coming and the end of all things in chapter 6, 7, 11, 14, 16, and there's two more, chapter 19 and 20 to 22. As you get later in the book, things get more intense, and the focus is more on the end of all things than the first coming. You have a brief mention and then a lot of focus on the end. Anyway, um, that's, that's important. That's important just to, to understand, especially when, when we get to trumpets and bowls and all this other stuff, like that what you're reading is stuff that is happening now, and it's not all that stuff that's going to be happening in the future. Okay, third and final presupposition. Numbers and symbols are not literal. Numbers and symbols are not literal. This is a necessary assumption if you... If you um, to start out with, if you have any hope to understand 
the vast majority of the book of Revelation uh, because it is dominated by images like stars and lampstands and trumpets and bowls and beasts and dragons and you, it goes on, right? Um, and, and, and they all appear in, in, in numeric form. Everything's in some numeric form and they're all either uh, the numbers of three or seven or ten or twelve or some multiple of one of those numbers like 24 or 42 or 1,260 or 144,000. And it's not literal. You just won't get very far at all in making any sense of this book if you don't start with those presuppositions, which I hope to show you as we make our way through the book, they're not arbitrary. They're not made up out of the blue. I think the text gives us those, those, um, those presuppositions, and they rise out of the text itself. All right. Like I said, chapter, uh, Revelation is divided up into seven sections. We're in chapter 2 today, and we are firmly in the first of those sections that began in chapter 1, verse 1, and we'll run through the end of chapter 3. And this whole section, this whole first section, revolves around seven golden lampstands. Okay? We saw that mentioned by Christ in chapter 1. Christ has this, in, in, like beginning in verse 12, Christ is this highly symbolic description of him, this divine warrior figure. But when in chapter 1, verse 12, John says, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. Um, by the way, there's this pattern in Revelation. It's always John hears something, and then he turns and he sees what he just heard. And it's kind of cool when... At one point in, uh, in Revelation, John uh, hears a lamb and sees a lion. Isn't that cool? Anyway, we'll get, we'll get there. But chapter 1, verse 12, it says, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. What are those seven golden lampstands? That is a symbol, and this is like Revelation right out of the chute telling you what I just said, that symbols are not literal. Um, that, that these, these lampstands are a symbol of the seven churches that are going to be addressed in chapters 2 and 3. We're blatantly told that in chapter 1, verse 20. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the stars are the angels of the seven churches. We'll talk about that in just a second. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. And I'll say something, like I said, I'll say something about the stars in, in, a, in a minute, but very plainly, the seven churches that we're going to address are what are symbolized by these seven golden lampstands. And I don't think that is a purely arbitrary uh, or random symbol for them or an image for them. Why? Because Jesus himself in Matthew chapter 5, verse 14, calls the church to be the light of the world, right? And we won't turn there, but if you were looking at Matthew chapter 5, and you saw in verse 14 him say the church is the light of the world, in the very next verse, Jesus uses there in Matthew 5, 15, the same word that is used here for lampstand when he says in, um, in, in that verse, uh, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all the house. And so this first section of Revelation it, as we read through the several letters of the churches, we're reminded by their symbolic designation as a lampstand, what is the main purpose of the church? This is the main purpose of the church, to bear witness to the Lord Jesus Christ, to bear witness and to shine a light on His glory in the world in which we live. 
Let me just highlight one other note from chapter 1 before we switch gears and dive heavily into chapter 2. I said that each of the seven sections describe the same period of time, specifically the whole period of time between the first coming and the second coming of Jesus, often called the church age. It describes the whole period of time. We're, we've got this whole period of time in view over and over again seven times. Now, the first section of Revelation is in, in a lot of ways different than the remaining six sections. How? Um, because you read the rest of it, and it's not dominated by letters, right? Epistles. <laughs> um, and, and so because of that, there's just not as much imagery and symbolism in the first section as there is in the rest of the section. Not to say there's not any, there's not as much. But nevertheless, the same principles are at work in this first section. What would it mean here then for seven letters to seven churches to say that they were actually intended not just for those specific churches, but for churches throughout this whole period of time? Uh, and that the issues addressed in them are common and applicable to every church throughout the entire church age, every generation, until Christ comes back. There are three clues that lead me to believe that this is the case. One clue is, is that this book is called Revelation and not Revelations with an S. If you say Revelations, stop. It's like saying Walmarts. It's one Revelation. It's one big fat revelation. And, and it include, that one big fat revelation includes these seven letters. Right? And so these seven letters would not have been sent individually to these individual churches. But all seven letters would have been sent as part of this one big fat revelation to all the churches. Right? And so... Um, along with the rest of it. So while the letter, for example, to Thyatira is specifically addressed to Thyatira, all six of the other letters also apply to them. And, it, and the same is true for all of them. And hence, also to us. Also to us and every other church until Jesus comes back. Second clue, and this shouldn't surprise us, is that I don't believe that it's mere coincidence that seven churches are addressed. Not six, not eight, seven Seven is always symbolically an important number in Revelation, signifying completion, wholeness, perfection, which lends credibility to the view that it is not merely these seven churches in view, but the whole complete church throughout the church age, first coming, second coming. Third and final reason I believe that, that John is instructed in chapter 1, verse is because John is instructed in chapter 1, verse 19, to write down the revelation given to him, which is describing, as verse 19 puts it, the things that are and those that are to take place after this. So that not only applies to the final six sections, but also to this first section. These letters apply to what are then and were coming after that, including now. All right. Those three reasons, individually but all the more together, seem to suggest that the things said to these following churches have to do not only with those specific churches, but to all churches, and not only for that time, but for all time, including Lakeview Baptist Church. Okay, that's some necessary context for us as we dive into these letters for the next several weeks. We begin today with the first letter in chapter 2, the letter addressed to the church in Ephesus. And so, Revelation 2, 1 through 7, if you haven't found that place, find it, and we'll read it together and we'll look more closely at it. 
John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know that you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works that you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this, I ha th yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, this is your holy, inspired, inerrant, sufficient, clear, authoritative, and necessary word. It is, it is clear we confess, not always as clear as we would hope, but it is clear. And Therefore, if you would give us eyes to see the truth here, and, and you, if you gave us the minds to understand what you were saying through John here, and hearts to embrace what is said here, and wills to obey what is said here, we, we will understand this word and live it out accordingly for your glory. So please give us all ears to hear as you say at the end of this letter and give me the help that I need to teach. I ask in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, before I lay out what I'd like for us to see in this letter, I should also say by way of introduction, since this is the first of seven whole letters, that uh, just by introduction to these letters, that every letter is not identical, but that there is a basic structure to every one of these letters. They more or less follow this. This One is identifying the addressee, uh, who it's being written to, to the angel of the church of whoever. Second, it identifies the author, the words of him who, and then it's the Lord Jesus talking, but the, the way he introduces himself in every letter is different, and it's important. Third is the, the commendation, the approval. I know your works. And he tells them what they're doing well. Fourth, though, you have a condemnation or a disapproval. I have this against you. Fifth, you have a warning. I will come to you and remove your lampstand. Sixth, the promise to the one who conquers, I will. Right? So the details differ in each. Again, Jesus identifies himself in a different way in each letter, and it has everything to do with what he's about to say to them in that particular church. The same is true for the final promises, which are different in every church. But the basic structure is the same, with the rare exception of Smyrna and Philadelphia, um, with whom the Lord Jesus finds no fault. Pretty awesome. As we think about what the Lord said to, to Ephesus, and by extension what he's still saying to us today, here's how I want us to break down what we see in this church. First, in verses 1 to 3, as well as verse 6. 1 to 3 in verse 6, we see the commendation. He's commending them, the commendation. How the Lord, we're going to see this in how the Lord introduces himself and what he praises or what he commends the church for. Second, in verse 4, we're going to, see, we're going to think about the compromise that Jesus faults them for. This is a word we need to hear. 
Third and finally, in verses 5 and 7, we're going to think about the confrontation. The confrontation found in the call to action that he issues and the warning he issues to them just before the promise that ends the letter. So that's how we're going to think through it. Let's dive in and let's look at the introduction of the letter considering the commendation that the Lord Jesus gives to the church in Ephesus. The letter begins as every other letter does, to the angel of the church at, and in this case it's the church at Ephesus. I don't want to spend a ton of time on this because I don't have it, but it is, as it is a feature that appears in every letter, I feel like I need to say a word about it. There's a, when it says, to the angel of the church at, there's a long-standing debate over whether that Greek word means a literal angel or just a messenger, and it could be a human messenger. So the debate is whether the angel of uh, is, is referring, referring to like a literal angel over this church or like figuratively at, to the pastor of this church. He's the, he's the human messenger that preaches God's word every week, right? Here's the, 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 I've gone back and forth. The deciding factor for me on Sunday, August 22nd, is that every other time this word is used in Revelation, it's referring to literal angels. Every other time. So it is from that vantage point almost, almost certainly meaning that here which would mean that in some sense there is an angel given some sort of charge over each church. That's bonkers. Presumably every church, which may be to our ears a strange thought. But Sinclair Ferguson, if you can ever find a book by Sinclair Ferguson, buy it. Sell something and buy it. Sinclair Ferguson has a really good word on, on this idea. He says... The references to the ministry of angelic figures reminds us that we do not live in an impersonal universe. God's providence, you know what God's providence is? His governance over the world he has made. God's providence is never a matter of impersonal forces somehow sustaining the development of history. Conscious, our conscious experience of angelic intervention like you have in Hebrews 13, 21, some people have entertained angels unawares. I feel like I might have done that. But anyway, which is while those conscious experiences might be rare, the reality of their guardian work is plainly affirmed. For example, in, in Psalm 91, 11, and 12, God shall give his angels charge over you to keep you in all your ways. In their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. The, and, and, and Ferguson goes on to say, The people of God have been preserved by angelic intervention times beyond number. Only the final heavenly unraveling of the plan of God in history will unveil the extent of their work. That's awesome. I mention that here not just to explain to you the feature in the letter, but also to introduce to you this very idea that will be such a huge part of the study of Revelation that there is so much more going on than what we can see with our eyes. There's just so much more going on in the world than we can see with our own eyes. Uh, you, you can see how this would have encouraged persecuted believers in the first century 
when all that they could see with their own eyes looked hopeless. What believers in Afghanistan may feel like right now. And it, sh- and it should still be encouraging to us today because in a world that is, it isn't much better than what it was then. But having addressed the angel at the church at Ephesus, the Lord Jesus introduces himself. And these introductions differ in each letter and are significant to what he's about to say. And to the church in Ephesus, he introduces himself as the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. And by that, he is emphasizing not only his presence in the church, but his sovereignty over it. He's in charge of it. He holds them in his right hand. Right hand. And his omniscience. He walks among the lampstands. He knows. He knows everything about them. And it's on this basis that the rest of the letter comes. It explains how he knows what he knows about his commendation, which we're about to see, and as well as his authority to fault them for what he faults them for, as well as the warning he's going to give them later. And now as we dive into the meat of the letter, I cannot stress how relevant enough how relevant it is still for us today. What Jesus says to, to the church at Ephesus here, he could easily stand where I'm standing right now and essentially say the same things. We'll see this to be common as we move through the book, through the letters. His commendation of them he, you find in verses 2 and 3, and it's no slight thing. He really commends them for some significant things. Notice verse 2 and verse 3, they both start with the words, I know, I know. And again, he's emphasizing his presence by his spirit in that church, and he knows everything about them. What does he say first that he knows? He says, verse 2, I know your works. And that's a very general term that he will spell out more specifically in what immediately follows. I know your works, namely your toil and your patient endurance. That language implies that that church in Ephesus had been experiencing persecution and pressure and that they had not compromised in, in some ways. At least in some respects, they had not compromised. That they were facing persecution in Ephesus should not, for, if you're familiar with your Bible, should not be surprising. You, you, given what you know about that city, even just from the book of Acts, read Acts. Read Acts chapter 19. Um, uh, and and, and we, know, we have other sources other than that, but we know from Acts and we know from uh, other historical sources outside of the book of Acts that Ephesus was a very prominent city. Um, and it was a, a wealthy city in that day, probably around 250,000 people. It's a big city, way bigger than Auburn, Opelika. Um, and uh, it was a coastal city in modern-day Turkey. So you had ships coming in, trade ships, very wealthy, very cosmopolitan. Um, and they were connected by Roman roads inland, so you had people could get to them by land or sea. It was a major place, prosperous and wealthy. We learn in Acts chapter 19 that Paul and Priscilla and Aquila started the church there in about AD, uh, AD 52. And that it was when they went there, they found out it was, it was an incredibly religious city and an idolatrous city. One of the seven wonders of the ancient world was found in Ephesus. It was the temple to the pagan goddess Artemis. Y'all. Ancient historian descriptions of this temple, along with archaeological evidence, show that this temple to the pagan god Artemis was around 100,000 square feet. Just for comparison, that's 
approaching twice the size of this Lakeview building. Twice the size. That's huge. And, uh, and, and, and it's one and a half times the size of the White House. How about that? Um, it was four stories high. When everything around it in Ephesus, ancient Ephesus, was like one story, maybe two, four stories high. It was completely made out of marble, 127 60-foot-tall marble uh, columns around it, 36 of them overlaid with gold or precious jewels. I mean, you walk up to Ephesus, and it's that big, gaudy thing that you see. It was almost, I'm, I'm, I'm not necessarily making a one-to-one comparison, but it's almost like Jordan-Hare Stadium compared to the rest of Auburn. It's that size difference, right? Um, people would come from all over the Roman world to worship there, and all kinds of immorality was there. Um, uh, criminals could, of any kind could, could find refuge in that temple. Criminals, there's all kind of criminal activity. There was also another temple for the worship of the Roman emperor. And in Acts chapter 19, you read about a guy named Demetrius who was a silversmith there. And he made his living out of making, out of silver, idols for Artemis and selling them. And when, when Paul started preaching and more people started believing, it encroached on his business and he didn't like it and he started a riot against Paul. And they dragged Paul and some of his friends all the way into the theater and they were going to beat them to death before one guy in town says, maybe we should give them a fair trial. But for two hours, for two hours, the whole city shouted, great is, the, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Two hours, the scripture says. This is about 40 years later when this letter is coming to that church in Ephesus. But this is the environment in which that church existed, in a city that hated them and felt like their very presence threatened their way of life. Later, this letter... Um, in this letter to them, Jesus is going to commend them in verse 6, if you look there. He says that they hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. We don't know much at all about this group other than what we're told here. But based on other groups that he calls out throughout these letters, they seem to be a group within the church who had begun compromising with the culture around them and saying that they had freedom in Christ to do that, you know? Participate in certain things that followers of Christ should not participate in. The fact that the rest of this church hated those works shows you again that they were trying to remain faithful in an idolatrous culture, even when that idolatrous culture had crept into the church. And the Lord Jesus tells them he knows. He knows that they've toiled and they've patiently endured, and even more specifically, that they had not compromised on the truth. Verse 2 also says that they had identified and tested some who had claimed to be apostles, but they found them to be false. They, this, this was a church that was sound doctrinally. They knew and they were committed to the truth and they cared to walk in holiness and purity and obedience. I hope that could be said of us. I want that to be said of us. I want community, but I want this community to be rooted deeply in truth and to be doctrinally sound so that the God that you love is God. Verse 3 just reinforces this, where the Lord Jesus acknowledges that they have, have not grown weary in this, that he knows that they're in, their, in their minds they're persevering for his name's sake. Again, I would hope that if Jesus were standing here, he would say the same thing to us. But as we keep reading this letter, we, we come to the compromise that he finds in them. Don't misunderstand based on what he's about to say to them that he thinks that they should focus less on what he just commended them for. 
patiently enduring and bearing up for Christ's sake, holding true to the Scripture and calling out false prophets and false teachers. No, he commends them for these things, and he's saying, don't slack up, but there's something else I need you to see. And verse 4 points out a problem that is serious enough that their very continued existence as a church was at stake. Look with me there as we consider the compromise that Jesus wants to correct. He gives it in just a few words in verse 4. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. What does he mean right there? What love did they have at first that they have abandoned? This is another one of those that's been debated since John wrote it. Is it their love for Christ that they had abandoned? Is it their love for each other that they had abandoned? Is it their love for the world to whom they were to bear witness that they had abandoned? What love had they abandoned? This is another one of those places where it seems to be, as New Testament scholar Gordon Fee says, purposefully ambiguous. John did it on purpose because it literally, it legitimately could mean any of those things that I just mentioned. And because of that, I think Jesus may have all of them in view. Kill a lot of birds with just one stone, right? For one thing, we remember that this is, this is Jesus speaking through John. And if we start with John's other writings, we remember that Jesus said through him also in John 13, 34, and 35, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Just as I've loved you, you're to love one another. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. And there you see how the Lord has in mind both their love for each other and their love for the world, to whom they are to bear witness through their love for each other. All will know you're my disciples. But according to John also, our, our love for each other reflects our love for Christ. 1 John 4, 20 and 21. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he does not love his brother whom he has seen. If, if, if he who does... This is a tongue twister. He who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this is the commandment we have for him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. So it appears on one hand, Jesus is saying that while they have not compromised on their doctrine and on their commitment to the truth of Scripture, and they have not compromised morally to the influences and the temptations around them in the culture, they had abandoned their love perhaps for each other and by implication the love that they had for Christ. On the other hand, it also appears that he's perhaps explicitly calling out their lack of love for the world and their obligation to bear witness to Christ in the world. Again, what does he say in verse 4? You have, abandoned your, the, you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Think carefully about those words. You've abandoned the love that you had at first. Now, you don't have to turn there, but listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 24, verses 12 to 14. He says that as time, as time goes on, in many churches, he says, the love of many will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. In that passage, the love of many growing cold threatens the gospel being proclaimed in the world. And Jesus accuses the love of the church of Ephesus growing cold and of abandoning it. So this leads me to believe that when Jesus said, you've abandoned the love you had at first, he meant a lot of things. He meant their love for him, exhibited by 
their love for each other, and their love for the world to whom they were to bear witness. George Beasley Murray tells us why this is such a serious compromise on their part. Listen to this. Where love for God wanes, love for man diminishes. And where love for man is soured, love for God degenerates into religious formalism. And both constitute a denial of the revelation of God in Christ. If the price paid by the Ephesians for the preservation of true Christianity was the loss of love, the price was too high. For Christianity without love is a perverted faith. And I, I pray that we would never weaken in our love for Christ and our love for each other and our love for the nations, even as we never let up on our doctrinal soundness and our, and our, our careful teaching. We can be as doctrinally sound and as morally pure as we can be in the midst of a wayward culture, but if our love grows cold in any of these ways, we've lost our reason for being. And that's the confrontation he brings to them as the letter comes to a close. We need to note that quickly. Jesus confronts them with a choice. He issues both a warning and a promise. He warns them in verse 5 that if, if something doesn't change, he says, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. That doesn't mean that I, that's not talking about his second coming. Just providentially, perhaps through the agency of this angel over them, he's gonna, they would no longer be a church. There are a lot of dying churches in our day. What does he call them to do? Verse 5, remember, remember therefore from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. And he promises them in verse 7, to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. He reminds them of the hope that they have in Christ. And the rest of the book is going to describe this over and over again. But he leaves it to them this way as we close. And at the beginning of verse 7, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And that tells you two things. This is a word not just for the ancient church in Ephesus, but to us. And this is a word that we will heed only if the Lord gives us ears to hear it. And it's for that that we must pray. Before we pray, I want you to look at your table leaders and tell them you look forward to getting to know them in the coming weeks. <laughs> Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for this word. I pray, I pray that you would find us as faithful as that church in Ephesus to walk in holiness and walk in purity and to know the truth and fight for the truth and stand for the truth but as we do those things, we don't become Pharisees. That we would walk in love undergirding that for each other and for the world to whom we are bearing witness. So when we bear witness to the truth of Jesus Christ to an unbelieving world, we do it with love. We do it with, with winsomeness, not with harshness, not with self-righteousness. Give us the grace to hear this word. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.